a lot of times you can get a fish to go up to like 10 feet to uh, to find a great fish fly once they are triggered with their lateral line of knowing that something that they're looking for has kind of thumped by them. They'll go into a, a hunt mode for it. And the same at the same time as you're making that presentation, when your line is on a tight line and you have a jig fly like that, you create this awesome, effective presentation with your upper fly when you can tap bottom with the lower fly on a tight line. That was Joe Goodspeed with a little tip when using his crayfish jig, a nice Euro slash fly rod mixed episode today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Joe Goodspeed from Thomas and Thomas is here to share some tips on choosing a Euro rod and his uh, and his great story. We find out which company is producing blanks for some of the mid-tier rod companies out there today. We find out which of uh, is TNT's best low-end rod and why this is a challenge for them. And plus, we talk about the next big thing coming up here this next year for TNT. Before we get started, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Angler's Coffee roasts a full range of coffees with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. And I'm one of those anglers who's been loving Angler's Coffee. Great tasting, robust, and good to go. They just released a new subscription program, and you can get 20% off this box and all products at anglerscoffee.com. Just use the coupon code WETFLYSWING at checkout to get 20% off of great coffee today. That's anglerscoffee.com. In today's world of mass-produced products, Stonefly Nets has reclaimed the tradition of handcrafted care with their custom wood landing nets. Stonefly's goal is to create a unique custom classic wood net that are second to none in quality and can be customized for that little extra touch. Please head over to wetflyswing.com stonefly to get your custom net today. That's wetflyswing.com stonefly to get started right now. Joe today calls it as he sees it, so this is really interesting as we get into this one. Uh, so without further ado, here is Joe Goodspeed from thomasandthomas.com. How's it going, Joe? Good, Dave. How are you, man? Good. Good. Thanks for coming on here. Uh, we were talking a little bit off the air there about a good topic to dig into. You gave me a little rundown. I didn't have your whole background, and, and you gave me a quick little synopsis on some of the stuff I didn't realize. And you know, you've got a ton of uh, background in the uh, obviously the rod design. I think a lot of people know, but also uh, line design and, and a bunch of bunch of stuff. Right now, you're with Thomas and Thomas. Uh, you know, designing rods there. Um, we're going to get into all that, but just take us back to how you first got into fly fishing, then how you kind of got yourself into where you are today. Well, I, you know, fly fishing, I've been, since a, since I was a, a child, I was in that uh, kind of river runs through it uh, age group area where I was, I was a kind of fascinated young child at, uh, at that time with uh, fly fishing and had some people in my family, my grandfather, who was, who tied some flies, who, uh, facilitated a little bit but uh i was i was always kind of a, a kid who was running around in, in streams and in the water as a child and around maybe 12 years old i really got into fly tying and fly fishing nice yeah so 12 and and that is yeah i mean that's definitely on the, on the earlier side and where did you where did you grow up i grew up in the like the very southern tip of the adirondack park in upstate new york near saratoga springs Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, you're right, right in the heart of it. Okay, so and what what it would be your, you know, I guess now. Um, well, and where are you now? So I, I just uh, bought a house in southern Vermont. Uh, TNT is right on the Vermont Massachusetts border, and it's in Massachusetts. So I, I crossed the border to uh, come into uh, work. Uh, TNT is right in the Connecticut River Valley, in on the uh, eastern side of the Berkshire Mountains, in a nice little area tucked up in the corner of Massachusetts. Nice, nice. Okay. So basically, yeah, you, you're in that that you know that amazing hot spot of for fly fishing and the the history there. I mean, so so you start at 12. When do you eventually know that you're going kind of all in on fly fishing and as a you know a career? Well, I uh, I I stumbled through college mostly focusing on high jump, and uh, and came out with a degree in English literature. And, uh, that, uh, that didn't set me up very well to, to do much of anything. And I, uh, 
I actually started working for Cortland Line as like a customer service person right like very soon outside of uh, outside of college and uh, that they Cortland did not hire me to do uh, to do product stuff but uh, after being there just for a little while I uh, got into the uh, manufacturing room and then started doing both uh, line design and overseeing the uh, the manufacturing facility there which I, I did that for uh, a few years nice yeah and we uh, we had a uh an episode you probably know uh brooks robinson but he we talked a little bit about the Cortland company the story there and um it sounds like yeah he had a, a similar story of starting out uh, you know kind of at the beginning and working his way up through and um you know he's still at Cortland. How, how did you you know once you got into i mean walk us through that as far as the fly design because you designed some flies over at Cortland. how do you get into that role from you know jumping on at the start at Cortland to where you got into designing products well, I'll just I'll touch on, on on Brooks there. I hired Brooks when I was the manu- when I was overseeing the fly line room to mix the paint colors into the fly line. In so that's where Brooks started working at uh, Cortland awesome. uh, in the fly line room when I was uh, managing that. So Brooks and I go uh, go way, way back. And uh, actually, you know, when I first started working there. I uh, I drew a I drew a, a design for a fly line taper and I'd never even seen the fly line room. It was kind of like very confidential, even within the company of who got to uh, hmm. to see that stuff. And I remember bringing that to bring this kind of complex tapered line that I, you know, was envisioning to the company president, and he was just like, "This is not your place, you know, huh. here to be be giving wow. <laughs> to be giving this." But then. Uh, a little way down the line, Cortland was doing something where they had this brand climax that they were trying to uh, do, just trying to refresh the refresh the brand identity of a, uh, of a brand they'd had for uh, a number of years. And they asked me to be like the product manager of that uh, that climax brand, and that was like a jump off point to be kind of jumping into product design and development there. And as, it's, as soon as I got into the kind of got back into the fly line room, I, they started to give me more free reign to work with, you know, the tapers and, uh, and every, there's a lot of aspects of, of fly line, the fly line cores, the way that they're primed, yeah. you know, the way that they're, they're cured, what sort of uh, flotation elements are put into them, the lubrication elements in them. There's, it's a there's a lot of stuff about Flyline that I really enjoyed, you know, having the chance to work with uh, that uh, that stuff there. So that yeah, so that's how I first started getting into products, and then I also did some rod stuff and some leader development stuff while I was uh, there with Cortland. Nice, yeah, that's interesting, and I, I don't want to dig to- way into a, the Cortland story because, like I said, we had a little talked a little bit about that. But um, so the, the hidden dry line room, how many people when you were there knew <laughs> knew about the hidden, you know, knew the secrets of of Cortland in the company? Really, the the people that worked in the room, and only a very small group of kind of people that the company thought was they were confidential with or were working on equipment in the room were the people that would be, you know, physically seeing because, you know, Corlin and and Rio had a, you know, a, a documented, you know, thing where someone someone left and, you know, uh, helped oh. set up different uh, equipment. And it was a very sensitive thing, you know, at the time that I was there of just kind of being, you know, pr- because of that protect and, and not because of that, you know, because it is, you know, a proprietary proprietary stuff in the first place yeah it makes sense and and over at, and then i guess at thomas and thomas did you so from Cortland once you wrapped up there did you was that your next uh, gig yes I, I i moved here to uh mass and took uh they actually hired me to do sales like a sales manager type position here and tom dorsey was still at tnt doing design work for a while when I, uh, when I came and started working at, uh, TNT. So I, I got to, I basically got to learn real, some of the aspects of real rod design. And I'll, I'll say real rod design because when I was at Cortland, I did some design that's the OEM design where another company is actually building something and you're oh, yeah. giving them feedback. Like I want the butt section to be stiffer or, you know, you can, that's, that's kind of design work. 
But when you sit down on a piece of paper and say, okay, you know, how, how much carbon is going to roll around what mandrel at what diameter to form, you know, what yep. taper, and how is it going to fit into the next section, you know, without having a, you know, a, a bad fit like that's to me, that's real rod design. And so those were some of the things that I got to maybe for about a year, year and a half, uh, learn some things directly through Tom Dorsey, but also, you know, to have access to all the history of what Tom Dorsey has, had done at TNT, which was about 25, 30 years of huh. carbon design and developing series like the uh, Horizon series, you know, these full and all and, you know, things like blue water rods, you know, light presentation series, the original paradigm rods. There's a wide range of things that Tom Dorsey had done at TNT that, you know, gave me a really awesome base of uh of stuff to you know to look at and process in addition to also you know being able to to work with tom a little bit directly for mm -hmm. a while and is that um is tom dorsey i don't know the whole history there but as far as uh, the the tnt history do you know most of how that whole thing got started and, and going yeah it was originally a, a bamboo company and and Tom, uh, and there were, and there were two, there were two Toms, Tom Dorsey and Tom Maxwell that were doing that bamboo work. And, you know, Tom Maxwell and Tom Dorsey kind of, kind of separated and Tom Dorsey got into working with carbon. And so very, very early on, you know, there are only a couple companies, I think Fenwick, you know, was another company really early on that started to make some high quality carbon rods. But uh, is is about as far back as anybody. Tom Dorsey was dabbling in and designing rods with uh, with carbon, you know, old spigot barrel, low modulus carbon rods. Huh. And what year was that? Just roughly when they started dabbling with the carbon. Eighty. You know, carbon has driven the fishing rod industry since the first couple years that it was around. You know, carbon is such a more, such a more dynamic, more effective material, just a family of materials to be making fishing rods out of, you know, it's the, the strength to weight ratio. It's so much lighter and faster recovery than glass that, you know, even early designs with carbon were more effective than really well designed, you know, rods made out of e-glass or the earlier kind of uh, lower modulus gra glass of something like those old, uh, you know, Fenwick yeah. orange colored rods, yep. you know, that's an, that's an e-glass, uh, rod, that feeling. And, uh, so yeah, carbon quickly supplanted those sorts of designs and what, and then what you've had was a progression of the, the modulus or the, the stiffness and the tensile, you know, there's a few ways of describing the properties of carbon, but, you know, as the, as the carbon gets to be more rigid, it recovers faster, has a better strength to, uh, has a better stiffness to weight ratio, but it usually loses strength as it becomes more stiff, it becomes more brittle. And the industry kind of designed around the carbons that made a lot of sense and then pushed to use carbons that were you know, even higher modulus and tensile. And I think kind of got into a place where a lot of things were breaking for a lot of companies. And, uh, and now I would say in the past six, eight years, a lot of the industry, I think has taken a step back to try to design in a more of a smart way to use high performance fibers, but to design with them in a more durable, you know, way to try to get a, a happy medium between performance and durability in the field. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that that that's kind of the I think we've talked about that a little bit here just on the yeah how rods got faster and faster and lighter and lighter and and um, and some people kind of prefer I guess maybe they're even going back to, uh, to some of the slower action stuff do you guys you know at Thomas and Thomas have some of that uh, stuff or is most of yours faster action. We TNT has a has a, a range of stuff that is all designed around casting with the line weight standard and for me because i've designed fly lines and i have an intimate knowledge of that line weight standard and how it kind of progresses across the range of lines i've tried to bring that to the rod design because the 
you know, in the industry, the line weight standard is the only thing that's a real, you know, sizing reference of what size something is. And it's, it's become more and more skewed. And, uh, I think that it's nice to be able to have equipment that you can expect is going to match up with lines that are made in a certain class. And I think that just like the rods have kind of gotten stiffer and then have kind of gone in the other direction a little bit, the lines have done the same thing where they've got heavier and heavier and really broke away from the line weight standard. And, and I can see the industry a little bit, you know, pumping the brakes on that and things starting to drop back into uh, a little bit closer to the standard. Now everything is like half, three quarters of a line weight heavy. That's really popular, but it's not just blowing away from what the line weight uh, standard was. So as you know, to get back on your question, as far as the deeper flexing rods, we released uh, last year, uh, the Paradigm, which is a reuse of a name that TNT made a Paradigm rod in the past, a, a deep flexing, lightweight four-piece series of, uh, of rods that uh that that is that and we have uh, a lodic glass series that's like a high performance really steep taper s glass rods and uh and a three four and a five weight that are also you know things that are a deep flexing pleasant to cast in in a way where you can you know really bend the rod yeah perfect well, I guess, and if you think about the graphite back in the 80s, the graphite rod, so you had, like you're saying, the Fenwick, you know, you had those older rods, you know, back then Fenwick was the rod company back in that time, but slowly it moved into these graphite rods. The difference between those and today's rods, is, is there any comparison? A, a lot of the stuff that became popular in the late 80s and through the 90s, the term uh, IM6 yep. was, uh, was thrown around a lot, and IM6 was just a certain carbon manufacturers trade name for their 30 ton or about 43 million modulus graphite. And, uh, you know, a lot of people make graphite in that range and that's probably the most popular, the 30 ton or 43 million modulus and the next, and the next couple, uh, stiffer classes. That's like kind of a sweet spot of of what carbon fibers are most applicable for fishing rods. And so, you, you have you have those fibers and then you have reinforcement fibers that hold the unidirectional carbon fibers together. It could be a scrim or it could be a, a different strategy fibers laid against each other at different angles to reinforce the fibers. And then you have uh, these fibers are always pre-impregnated with a resin. And there's there's a lot of potential for, you know, higher performance or changing the properties of something with having a better glue that's bonding it together when it's uh you know when it's uh forming yeah. so there's a few things out there also i'd like to touch on quick here i see a lot of companies talking about these nano nanoparticles oh, yeah yep uh, and and the one that i the one that, that i always kind of laugh when i see the companies promoting it now is graphene oh <laughs> Graphene. I don't know anything about it, but yeah, from the outsider, it just sounds kind of funny and weird. I guess some of this is a marketing thing, but you're saying, but some of this is, is there some kind of some BS meter stuff going on here? Well, here, here's the deal with graphene. Graphene is a nanoparticle. It's a little, it's a tiny little, like, a, you know, atomic particle size platelet. The, the, it's like a kind of like a tubular structure, but the problem within the industry of making effective use of these nanoparticles is a matter of separating them and suspending them within a resin at a industrial size uh, batch of material because you have stuff like stuff like uh, any of these nanoparticles they have a strong desire to clump together when you put them in a suspended liquid yeah. because they're they're all like a dry particle in the first place and in a test lab, when you can use a blood centrifuge to spin these things around super fast, you can suspend those nanoparticles in a liquid and you can uh, spread them out on a material in a prepreg in such a way that you get these unbelievable properties in the test lab in these small batches. But the, the problem is, in order to have enough material to be doing things like making industrial batches of fly rods, it's a much more kind of coarse type of operation. 
than what you would do, you know, with a blood centrifuge to yep. take a pint of, of resin and, and suspend these uh, graphene nanoparticles in there. So, but you can buy the graphene particles and you can throw them into your resin in your rod. And even if you aren't able to separate them and achieve the properties, you can make a legit claim that you've got graphene in your rod. And you can also make a legit claim of showing the properties of graphene in a laboratory and say, I've got this material that's yeah. twice as strong in my, you know, in my rod. And so, you know, it's in a way, no one's lying when they're doing that. Yeah. But, but, you know, unless, you know, as long as your rod doesn't break, you don't know if it's stronger because it's just constructed, you know, out of things that work or if it's got graphene in it. So it's, it's a really good marketing ploy and these, these companies that are doing it, I can, I can see that it's getting, you know, people really excited that they've got some sort of this new yeah. different article in their rod. But the the thing that's, that's funny to me about this is by the time that this technology is actualized, it's going to sound like it's old technology to the <laughs> people who are going to be, be selling it. You know, they've been selling me graphene rods for 10 years yeah. by the time that is actually doing something to improve your rod. That's crazy. Yeah. And to obviously to me and others that are, you know, kind of the don't know all the insider information, um, you know, we have no idea, right? We, we just are like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds great. And they go with it. I mean, what advice would you give somebody? I mean, there's so many rods out there. You guys have a ton of great rods. I mean, there's other companies that have great rods and there's probably a lot of companies that are, you know, like you're saying, maybe aren't the greatest rod. I mean, how do you know you can pick up a rod and cast it, but what would be your recommendation? If somebody wants to grab a new rod. How do they know who to start with? And, uh, and you know, how do they pick out that, that BS meter stuff? Well, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a huge number of these small rod companies that are, that are popping up now and it's becoming easier and easier to buy high quality pre-made blanks from a, a number of manufacturers who can, you know, who can replicate kind of other, other people's, uh, stuff. And so I, I see people talking online about companies like these being like design companies and, mm -hmm. It's, I'm, you know, I always wonder where the blanks are coming from when, when someone who's a, a company, who's not a company who's building anything themselves is, you know, talking about their, their designs or their different models. And, you know, I, and I'm, I'm thinking that they are, you know, just, a, you know, there's companies like, uh, like bats and rain shadow blanks, you know, there's some really nice blanks that are available in the industry that uh, that some small time rod builders use that I think it's it's easy for someone who's just finishing a rod to kind of take you know take ownership of uh, of what the blank is and what the the blank is really the heart and soul of the rod and uh, yeah. so as far as TNT goes the thing that excites me the most about TNT is that right here in the factory where I'm sitting in my office we you know, we're cutting the carbon and, and rolling the, uh, rolling the blanks. What I, I, before I talked to you this morning, I was back in production looking at a, you know, at, at a batch of tips that just uh, came out overnight that we were trying a different strategy of how we were pre preparing them to go into the oven to bake. And, you know, I spent, you know, an hour this morning pulling cellophane off of the outside of fresh new graphite parts and flexing them and, and comparing them. And wow. so that's, you know, having, uh, you know, that it also yeah. means the quality can, the, you know, make sure that things are still going right. And it, it makes us accountable for, you know, seeing the things that are coming out, but having, having been at Cortland and gotten some rods that we weren't making ourselves, and having to do some quality control on stuff that, you know, you didn't, you had no control of what was going right or wrong. It's, you know, you're, it's more responsibility, but it's really nice to be in the driver's seat of knowing exactly how things are being made, how tight the quality standard is, and to be able to communicate with the people that are barreling the rods together and, you know, splining and mounting the rods together about, you know, how tight is the quality standard? You know, what are you, what are you seeing as new batches are coming out? If there's any sort of variation in, in production, those are all, you know, first, firsthand things that, you know, being in the factory, we have to deal with on a, on a daily basis as we're, you know, looking to fill preseason orders and, looking to crank out batches of new parts every day. No, that's th thanks for cl clarifying that makes sense. So basically, yeah, if you're 
if you want to uh, make sure you don't get messed up, you know, stick with some of the companies that have been around for a while, you know, like you guys, and there's a number of other ones. Um, uh, so that's great advice. Is there, you know, I'm not sure on price ranges and things like that, but I mean, to do all the companies, do you guys as well as some of the other bigger ones have a, a bunch of different levels? I mean, what would be like a starter if somebody wanted to get in that versus your high end is on rods? We have, uh, we, we hadn't done it for quite a while, but uh, about two years ago, we came out with a our zone series which is a lower price point rod that's uh it's an unsanded unpainted kind of stripped down appearance rod that's still you know cut and rolled 100 here you know in our factory like the more expensive ones and honestly it's you know company wise it's it's a way lower profit margin to try to yeah. be selling uh to have you know the same the same, you know, lady who has been writing on the rods for nearly 30 years, serial numbering each section of our zone rod, just like, you know, yep. any, like our you know paradigm rod or anything else that we sell at a more premium uh, price point. But yeah, we uh, we do do the, a rod series like that. That's a, it goes from three to 10 weight. And there is a uh, there's a 10 foot four weight in there that, you know, would be our closest thing to a euro rod. That's not our uh, focused Euro series, which has been tremendously popular for us. The, uh, our, we went from selling the contact series, which was the most popular thing that we were selling when we discontinued it and came and released the contact two series, which is a, uh, improved rod all the way across the board. And we, we can't make enough contact two rods to, uh, to fill orders for those right now. Nice. And, w- and what is the contact two rod? What, what does that one run right now for the, say the 10 foot four weight? Contact two rods are eight twenty five. The Contact oh. two series is a ten foot two weight, ten foot three weight, ten foot nine inch three weight, ten foot nine inch four weight, eleven foot two inch three weight, and there's the steelhead size ten foot eight inch six weight. Oh wow, nice ten to that. There you go. Okay, so yeah, and that's the reason. I mean, that's definitely under under a thousand eight twenty five. So basically, these the ones you're talking about, the Zone series, are more like are they kind of like half that cost? Yeah, the, the the zone series are around uh, five, right around five hundred. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, thanks for clarifying. And I, just kind of on a funny note, I was um, interviewing Mike Lawson recently, and he was t- telling us a little bit about uh, Gary LaFontaine. And I hadn't heard a lot of Gary's stories. I know he was a, you know, knew a lot, and uh, but he talked about how Gary, one of his things where he told everybody to, to when they get a new shiny rod, he said, make sure to sand it off, sand off the coat yeah. because you you don't want to scare fish. So it sounds like the Zone series. Have you ever heard that story? And uh, you know what I mean. Like, is do you know much about Gary and all of his antics? I've I've heard other rumors of people like in the parking lots of the. Uh, the uh the snake river there at the henry's fork sanding sanding down uh, <laughs> brand new uh brand new rods and i know that that's where mike's uh mike's shop was for uh for a long time so i i think i have kind of heard, heard reference to that yeah and now let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors In today's world of mass-produced products, Stonefly Nets has reclaimed the tradition of handcrafted care with their custom wood landing nets. Stonefly starts the design process by selecting wood for the handle based on a number of key factors, including grain pattern and depth, but they don't stop there. This piece of art is accentuated by strips of hardwood that complement and accentuate the handcrafted handle. To be honest, I have never been a huge net guy, mainly because I didn't feel like my uh, old collapsible net was easiest to use and was not easy on the eye, if you know what I mean. The Stonefly uh, net not only looks beautiful, but has high quality netting that is easy on the fish and will last for years to come. Stonefly's goal is to create a unique custom classic wood net that's second to none and can be customized for a little extra touch. For Ethan, the founder of Stonefly Nets, fly fishing has always had a traditional feel going back to fishing the three-weight bamboo rod with his great-grandmother. When Ethan designs a custom net, it's his hope that others will create amazing lasting memories for years to come. Please head over to wetflyswing.com stonefly to get your custom net now. That's wetflyswing.com stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y to get started right now. What's worse than a day with no bites? A day without coffee, or even worse, a day with bad coffee. Thankfully, that isn't the case for us. 
With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee team roasts a full range of coffees with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. That's why they've released a brand new coffee subscription program made just for you. Just visit anglerscoffee.com, provide your coffee preferences, your mailing address, and how much coffee you drink in a week, and they'll take care of the rest. There's no obligations or hidden fees, just great coffee delivered to your front door. And I've been using and loving Angler's Coffee, and I am a coffee fanatic and have tasted uh, bad coffee for sure. Angler's Coffee is definitely great coffee. I've been enjoying it. Um, it's as good, to be honest with you, it's as good as, as I've had <laughs> that I can remember. And that's pretty awesome saying uh, since I drink a lot of coffee. So uh, join me in supporting a great company who supports great coffee, fly fishing, and conservation. As part of Angler's Conservation Alliance, Angler's Coffee donates a portion of every sale to help conserve and protect our wild natural habitats and fish species. Right now, they're raising money for Soul River, which brings veterans and inner city youth out into the river to teach conservation, fishing skills, and more. Right now, you can get 20% off your first subscription box or gift box. Simply use the code WETFLYSWING at checkout. Just visit anglerscoffee.com and get 20% off your first subscription or gift box using Wet Fly Swing at checkout. That's anglerscoffee.com. Okay, now let's get back to the show. Well, let, let's dig in. We, you know, we've kind of give, done a little bit of a, a background, and you, you, you know, obviously, you're talking to somebody that doesn't know a lot of the insight. So, I appreciate hearing a little bit of that. We've talked about rods, but it's it's obvious. Listen to the way you talk that you know you've got a lot of this insider information. I mean, is there anything before we get into maybe a specific on the euro side? Anything else somebody should know about you know choosing a rod, picking a rod, um, kind of the company? Do you do you just recommend find somebody like Thomson Thomas? that's obviously got got the history and, and just find a rod that meets your price needs? I, I, I would recommend to anybody who has the chance to, to find the, the closest fly shop that keeps a generous stock of different equipment in, uh, in-house and to put your hands on as much of the type of equipment that you're interested in, you know, buying or that you could potentially compare because there's such a difference in the in the body mechanics and in the preferences, you know, of what of how people use a fly rod that, uh, you know, certain action rods are just really better or worse for different people. And, you know, it's even better if you can, you know, cast rods with lines and the types of flies that you might expect to uh, to do in the field, because it's I think it's very easy for someone to see, to read some copy about a product and, you know, to fall in love with it on paper. And it's a, you know, it's, there's a lot of people that I see choose a rod that's not right for them or not right for their situation. And then, you know, try to figure out how to make it work for them on the back end. And that's not the best way to do it. You know, if you, if you're able to interact with the product on the, on the front end, even if you can find even if you can find rods that you're like, okay, this one works better for me. And, you know, how does rod X for you, TNT, compare to this, you know, echo rod that I, you know, mm-hmm. that matched up well with my casting stroke. Even if you can have that conversation, you can get in touch with uh, company technical people like me. And, you know, at TNT, I field a lot of calls from people who are like, you know, I'm trying to just make sure I choose the right rod. And oftentimes I can ask a few questions and, you know, if they have other rod actions or experiences with different rods or different line matches with those rods, it goes a long way for me being able to, you know, interpret, you know, yep. what what type of stroke they have and how, you know, they might be able to match up with something that will work better for them. That's that's great advice. Yeah. So go into your local fly shop, test out a bunch of rods and then, um, you know, and once you find a company you feel like you're good with, then contact them if you need further um, technical assistance, which is great. I mean, when you're out there, you know, maybe just talk about that briefly. So if you're casting, I mean, I know you're probably going to have a, a shop owner that, that's going to be coaching a little bit, but when you're casting the rod, how do you know, is there a certain feel? Is it kind of like I guess I go back to the drift boat I had. We're doing a little drift boat series as well, and I, I was talking to Koffler, and, and I asked him, you know, how do you know when your drift boat, you know, everything's set up right? And he says, you'll just know it. It'll just feel right. Is that is that the same thing with, with the fly rod? Is that the same analogy would work? Yeah. I would, I would say that uh, 
when things work well for someone, usually like, you know, right, right from the start, you have a kind of more pleasant feeling experience working with the equipment. When, yeah, when a, when a fly rod, especially when it's matched up with the right line, and that can be a problem, you know, because a lot of rods for a certain casting stroke, there's a way of lining the rod that's going to make it work best for who the person is and what they're doing. And, and having someone from a fly shop who's there making sure that when someone's testing something, they're doing it with a realistic line match, you know, that's, you know, Real, realistic for the rod and for what the angler expects to do that goes that goes a long way so from you know from the on the from the fly line side of the industry you can ex, you can approach things like okay we can address whatever rod issue you're having with a line that's going to make it work better for you but if you're buying a premium rod it's much better to you know figure out an action of a rod that works well for you and then be able to, you know, also choose a line that's going to match up with what you're trying to do because they both go hand in hand and you have a much better experience if, you know, if both of them are in harmony with, you know, your body mechanics and how deep you like a rod to flex and how long you're expecting your cast to be with the way you're going to fish when that's all, you know, in harmony, it, it feels right. Yeah. Okay. And, and that again, and now that's a whole nother thing back to the lines, right? You know, who, which line company do you go with? And yeah, it start, starts again because like you were saying, you know, I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of online stuff going on, um, you know, sales, but for the most part, I think if you stick with your local fly shop, um, they can walk you through it. Uh, I did want to touch, you know, on the Euro, uh, the Euro rod, I, I was talking to somebody, uh, who is a lot more familiar with the contact uh, and the contact two series. And one of the questions he had with it, he loves the rods, by the way, and uh, and Zach uh, was his name. He was saying that, um, you know, like there's a difference between like if you're fishing one little tiny Euro nymph versus two and versus a three weight or, you know, when you design those rods, you know, were you thinking specifically about not only what line you're using, but, you know, how much weight is on there? And do you have any recommendations for somebody who's picking a euro rod and, and maybe just talk a little generally about contact too and then about that question those contact rods every single one is designed to excel in a certain type of situation that i think is a is a common situation but there's also the 1093 the 10 foot 9 inch three weight is the rod that's right in the middle of kind of the different things that you might do and that one is by far our most popular model there's a lot of guys lately who have bought a specific nymph rod especially a longer one over the past few years and you know overhead casting to the point that they're not ready to fully just commit to having like a mono rig that they're banging around all day and those and so in the past uh in the past couple years a really nice 10 foot rod in three weight or two weight has become a popular thing for the some of the best uh, Euro anglers who are good with a longer rod, but are doing more dry dropper and uh, want to be able to maybe carry a pair of spools and bounce back and forth between traditional, you know, casting where the line is loading the rod and using real long, you know, leaders where you might have just, you know, tapered mono going through, uh, going through your rod as you are, uh, as you're out fishing there. So that's a trend that I've seen lately is the, a really nice 10 foot rod that can cross over and do both types of techniques has has become an important part of a lot of the guys quiver you know getting into just that like 11 foot three weight or a, a rod that's you know very euro focused but isn't going to be able to throw an overhead line worth you know very yeah. effectively going back to that what did you say the the rod you met you mentioned the 10 foot but the, was there also the 10 foot nine inch was that the the first one you noted the most popular model there is the 10 foot nine inch uh, three weight. And in the original contact rods, that most popular model was the 10 foot eight inch three weight. And the, I, then the contact two is that that replacement model is one inch longer, which allows us to keep all the parts here separate in production amongst, uh, amongst other things, since that was such a popular model for us, the, uh, the original ones. Oh, right. Okay. And, and why did you guys went from the contact, uh, to the contact and what was the what's the big change there what, what what do we you know what's the difference between the two other than what you've mentioned when when we when we came out with the contact rod 
TNT had previously done a nymph specific rod, the ATS that we didn't sell any of. And, uh, and having the nymph rod experience that I had at Cortland, I said, we can, we can make a much nicer rod for this, but this was still going back about five years at a, a time where it was taking off in the industry, but TNT wasn't selling all that many rods at that time. And it didn't seem with the type of company TNT was that that was going to be a big seller for TNT in a specialty nymph rod. And so the first set of them, I designed them in about two months, hmm. the original contact rods. And so as we started selling them and the sales took off, it was very obvious to me that with a more focused effort, there was a potential to make a better product. And with them selling well, I spent uh, over two years doing material research and trying to find a way to make a rod that had a similar performance, but would have, you know, much better strength, durability, and could, you know, potentially improve the performance at the same time that we were improving the overall product of the uh, of the rod because those rods were designed with materials TNT already had and was working with and after learning a lot more about material and material strength and layup angle properties the when we designed the contact two rods uh, you know I, I spent about two years designing them as opposed to two months hmm. and, and because of that they're about that much you know, that much better and have that much more uh, design and thought behind them. They've got different uh, different guide spacing. It's there's subtle differences, but they're the differences that make a product go from being a good product to being a great product. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And and when did uh, so the Euro uh, rod? When did you guys make? When did that first Euro? I guess you know Euro niffing's become a very common word these days. But when was the first rod you guys get? When did you get into it? Well, like I said, before I even got here, Tom Dorsey had designed a series of about four or five rods that were up to an 11 foot three weight called the ATS or Advanced Tactical Series. Yeah. But just not, they're a very slow recovering rod. Like a lot of the early nymph rod actions that missed the point uh, just didn't recover fast enough. And uh, now, you know, a lot of companies have made two or three versions of a, of a nymph rod. You know, Sage has made a couple, Echo has made at least uh, three, you know, some of the companies that have, have gone after this market. I think G. Loomis has made more than uh, one to, uh, to go after that uh, market. Everyone's gotten better with making products that are meeting the needs of what people are doing. And the people have a better idea of what they're trying to do, you know, these days than, you know, early on. I think some of the feedback that the rod companies were getting were just maybe not from the right people or not really the getting the right, you know, type of feedback that they needed to make the rods the way people have kind of gotten them to the point where they are now. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So let, let's just, uh, let's take that. You mentioned the nine foot, uh, nine inch, uh, three weight, the contact two. If somebody has that rod or is getting that rod, um, what would be the line? I mean, there's probably a few different ones you'd pair up with that, but is there a line you would recommend that, that fits well with that for, you know, if you're going out for Euro? One of the things that I made sure that was different about the Contact 2 rods compared to the Contact 1 rods is they all cast really nice with a true-to-line weight line. And so that 10-foot, 9-inch, 3-weight, you can put a standard weight, 3-weight line like a Scientific Angler Mastery Trout mm-hmm. or Rio Gold or, uh, you know, Cortland has some lines that are true-to-line weight. And all of those lines are going to uh, be within the range of what that rod will cast well without having the kind of wonky. Uh, yep. A lot of rods will cast a real poor overhead line with the line weight that they're intended to be. And it's a difficult thing to make a Euro rod that will cast a smooth loop shape and still Euro effectively and have you know good back where you want to set the hook. There's a lot of uh, things that balance out there. And, you know, because I spent so much time on the contact two rods compared to the contact one rods, that was one of the performance attributes that I was able to improve and, and dial in on the new ones. Nice. And how do you know, so you've got the contact two, when did that come out? Is that fairly recently? We released those in July of 2020 is one, uh, there were hundreds of them on pre-order before anyone saw saw the, uh, oh, the right. first one. But, 
time we started to uh, ship was the start of July. That's that's cool. Um, and it, we're going to start to think about wrapping this up here, Joe, uh, pretty quick. But I just want to touch on a couple things. So, so yeah, so on the Contact 2, I mean, you, obviously it sounds like you've created a, a much, you know, even a better rod. How do you know, like the Contact 3, for example, I mean, how do you know when that next rod is ready to, to go, that next series? Because, uh, you know, occasionally you hear that, like there's a new thing coming out. And, you know, when does the Contact 2 get old? So the Contact 1, like within months of releasing that as a designer, in my mind, I was like, that's low-hanging fruit to improve that product. The Contact 2... Uh, we spent so much effort on making it really nice. There's just about nothing that I would change within that range. The durability has been better than I could have even hoped for, for the, uh, for long thin rods like, uh, like this. So I, I expect the contact to, to be an industry standard within that, you know, premium nymph rod segment for at least three, four years. Okay. So basically, and, and as part of that three, four years, the fact that there's pretty a good chance that there's going to be some new technology in that time that will help even improve it more. Is that how it kind of works? Potentially, but that rod right now is made utilizing some of the m most recent, most advanced uh, strategies that are available in the industry. And the previous ones were made using very standard you know things that people might have been doing for going back at least 10 15 years so this one you know some things are going to have to change in a pretty drastic way at a faster rate than they typically change within the industry to make a product like this obsolete based on the technology in that time frame gotcha okay yeah and i'm just trying to hit on that thing you know again for the you know, kind of the noob or the person that doesn't know a lot about it, if they pick, you know, or even say they have a contact one rod they're using, you know, and, and is working fine. You know, it's one of those things where they could probably use it for another 10 years, but they're they're going to miss some of that technology that might make their the, it easier for them or, right, a better caster. Is that kind of what you're looking at when you come out with these new models? And, and would you recommend if somebody does have the contact one right now, uh, are they still feeling pretty good or would you recommend they start thinking about doing the contact two? The Contact 2, the Contact 1 is an awesome performance rod. The Contact 2 is a is a much more durable, all-around, long-term fishing tool. You know, I, I consider the Contact 1 like a, like a high-performance sports car, you know, that uh, is, you know, is nice. not, not the... Like a Tesla? <laughs> <laughs> Some of those things, you know, you have to sacrifice some of what you can do, you know, if you've got like a lowered, you know, super fast sports car. And I see the contact too, like being a high performance vehicle that's also, you know, lifted up and can go over, you know, heavy terrain. Nice. nice. And I, we're, we're, uh, we're going to do a quick little, just kind of a, a few rapid questions here to get out of here. And I know we didn't cover everything of your career. We kind of touched on a few things, but you know, when you look back on everything you've done, lines and rods, I mean, is there one thing, one project you're, you're, mo you're most proud of over the years? There's a couple things I've, I've done here that I'm, that I'm pretty proud of. I think the contact too is the most comprehensive, you know, product lineup that I've done as far as being the, you know, compared to what other people are doing, as being as good uh, as yeah. it could be. But the, the, the stuff that I'm working on now, now that I have the amount of design experience under my belt that has resulted in things like the contact too, I have, we're just finishing up a new saltwater rod that uh, I've been working on for quite a while. And they are, you know, the final rods are going into production. And what's on my desk right now, like literally in front of me is, a new high-performance freshwater uh, rod lineup that uses the similar technology to what the Contact Two rods are made from. Nice. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that you know that the Contact Two, this new saltwater rod, and this new freshwater rod that will be behind it are all going to be reflect that level of you know of product quality and and, and design. Perfect. Perfect. And what about, you know, you're obviously now you have a ton of experience. You would be a great uh, person to connect with or like a mentor. I mean, when you look back at your experience, is there one person that really sticks out that helped you kind of as a mentor in all this, this whole process? Uh, within, within the, within the industry long-term, I feel uh, Dave uh, Whitlock 
would a lot, you know, for me, the the product stuff is what I'm doing at work, but the fly design and the fishing side of the industry is is probably where I have more passion. And uh, and a lot of that is fly design. And uh, with Dave Whitlock, that's that's the person in the industry that I've always kind of put on a pedestal communicating with him about how he started to create these very realistic imitations of things at a time where in the industry just, you know, you didn't have anyone who was doing that or offering that. And it was out of necessity. And uh, his, you know, his creative process for creating the designing the flies is uh, that's the that's the thing for me in the industry that I really put on a, a pedestal. And right now, you know, my, my friend Blaine Chocolate is, a you know, another mm-hmm. person who's in in our time period right now who's who's, you know, doing some dynamic uh, stuff. uh like that. And those, those types of people, you know, are, are people that I think deserve a lot of credit. Yeah, for sure. Is there uh like for, for Dave, is there a fly that kind of comes to mind whenever I know he's got some pretty, you know, big stuff, but one fly that kind of comes to your mind when you think of Dave? Dave's hopper, the near enough, uh, near enough sculpin, near enough crayfish. He's got uh, a lot of imitations that uh, that match a certain food item that can help you you know potentially fool some of the smartest most educated uh fish yeah there's there's a, a few of them but those are okay. the three of those three are right there cool and and i know you have the the uh, uh, crayfish pattern you want to talk about that one just really quick and where you can uh, find that one i think i think that they're totally sold out through uh <clears throat> through fulling mill i do oh, okay. uh it's a it's a it's a compact little crayfish jig in size six, eight, and uh, and ten, and uh, that's a fly. One of the things that I've I've done with that fly, I was I posted things about this recently, but I've caught uh, wild thirty inch uh, public water brown trout during the day in uh, upstate Jeez. New York on uh, on those flies, and a lot of uh, fish like you know twenty five inches and bigger in marginal uh, waters, especially when I was first. Uh, coming up with, uh, with that pattern. That's, that, that's something that with a rod, like the contact to 10 foot, nine inch four weight, which is, has a little bit more tip power and backbone than that, uh, 10 foot, nine inch three weight, which is super popular. That 10 foot, nine inch four weight is a rod that you can use bigger nymphs like that with those precise European techniques to, you know, take on bigger water and to do things like catch, you know, not just those big marginal water trout, but the the carp and the walleyes that are living in you know big big river current environments. The those are all the things yeah. with the European rods that I do and do in my personal time. That's it. Yeah, and that answers back to that Zach's question. The 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 uh, ten foot nine inch four weight. The four weight would be the one if you're ca- casting heavier stuff for sure. And is the the crayfish? Is there a name? Do you have a name for that pattern? Just so we could take a look at it. Through Fulling Mill Flies, that's Joe's Mini Crayfish Jig. Perfect. And uh, I uh, I know that I think that they sold through their stock after uh, Joe from Red's Fly Shop in Washington just recently did a, a YouTube video where he was just laying waste to uh, to, to big trout in <laughs> in real time on video with, uh, with those flies after he had just gotten them into uh, his shop there in Ellensburg, Washington. Yeah. And. Uh, that would that would be a good if you wanted to kind of see the fly, you know, pictures of the fly. I think you know, getting wet and actually fishing. That uh, if you look at uh, the Reds Fly Shop uh, YouTube page, there should be a, a recent video uh, highlighting that uh, crayfish chick. Cool, cool. Yeah, I'll put a link out to that video in the show notes for this one. And I actually just re- uh, recently interviewed Joe uh, on the podcast here, so I'll put a link to that episode. He, yeah, he really broke down. He's he's a wealth of knowledge for sure. He uh, he broke down a bunch of great tips there. So, okay, cool. And what about you know we, we didn't get into you know any of the saltwater stuff or you know some of the the bigger game stuff that you've done. Um, but as far as a, a trip, is there anything on tap like a bucket list trip? You kind of still, you know, you want to get in out there once we're once we get out of this COVID stuff. I I will say that, uh, that I've done a little bit more blue water stuff here in the Northeast over the past couple of years. Last year, I was able to land a mako shark off the uh, off the Northeast coast on the fly. Oh wow! Uh, this year, I hooked a, a adult bluefin tuna. And, uh, and fought that until I was 
pretty much exhausted and then had my uh, a prototype rod. I was working on a four-piece blue water rod break as we were, as I was pumping that fish up uh, pretty close to the boat. And so, uh, and then the fish broke the 60 pound leaders. We were trying to hand line it just, uh, Jeez. just under the boat. That was maybe like 125 pound, uh, bluefin. I'm, I really love the tunas and the things yeah. you have to do the two hand, uh, strips for. And so landing a, uh, a bluefin tuna is, has Amazing. gone toward the top of my, uh, personal list. Huh. That is cool. <laughs> yeah. I guess we'll, we'll uh, yeah, we, we'll have to save that for the, another one down the line to dig into that. But, um, well, we do just a quick little segment sometimes where, where we have time. And um, this is just so, you know, you mentioned a couple of flies. If we talk about Euro nymphing and we haven't dug into a lot of the tips and tricks, but um, I'm assuming you've done quite a bit of Euro, Euro nymphing. Uh, but do, would you have a couple of flies that you would recommend that we, kind of your go to flies that you like to use? Well, since I just mentioned that crayfish fly, yeah. <laughs> let me, I'll, I'll touch that out a little bit. That crayfish fly, it's it's tied on a right angle jig hook, and uh, it has kind of a rubber bumper that wraps around the jig ball. And if you're using that fly, and if you're in a water, especially big marginal waters like non-tail waters or waters that warm up a little bit and where you have uh, mixes of species like you've got carp or smallmouth bass living with where you have still have some trout, that's where trout will often be eating bigger food items like small crayfish. And the trout will use their lateral line to feel the thump of small crayfish, which mm-hmm. will swim backwards where they can't see where they're going until they hit into something. And then they kind of drop to the bottom and, and pop, pop their claws out. Yep. And if you take the uh, fly like my crayfish jig fly and you are using a European leader where you have a cider a stripe of like cider mono within your leader, you can adjust your leader length so that when you're on a tight line, you know, your, your cider is tight as that crayfish is, uh, tracking down through the current and hitting the bottom. And if you can create that presentation where you let the fly kind of drop down like a pendulum swing and tick along the bottom as it uh, moves through the water that you're targeting, you can effectively cover a much wider swath of area because you don't just need to get the fly into the visual range of the fish. But if you can kind of get adjacent to a fish and have the, uh, have them be able to feel that fly thumping along next to them. A lot of times you can get a fish to go up to like 10 feet to, uh, to find a fish fly once they are triggered with their lateral line of knowing that something that they're looking for has kind of thumped by them. They'll go into a, a hunt mode for it. And the same, at the same time as you're making that presentation, when your line is on a tight line and you have a jig fly like that, that can comfortably bump along the bottom. If you tie in a dropper fly above that, the way, you know, typically guys that are Euro nymphing will have a heavier fly in the bottom and then a dropper fly above it. Mm-hmm. You create this awesome, effective presentation with your upper fly when you can tap bottom with the lower fly on a tight line that will leave a fly that's on a dropper tag kind of swinging around and and thumping in place in the current the same way if you have a situation where you're using multiple flies and you get your fly stuck on something a lot of times you'll get a bite on the other fly when the fly is stuck because the fly does a whole different thing when your line is tight bouncing around on that dropper so you can use uh, some sort of uh, swimming nymphs like a caddis pupa that the fish expect to see moving around in the water and put that on a dropper tag, maybe 15, 18 inches above a crayfish fly. And you can get, you know, better performance catching fish on that caddis pupa than you were, than if you were just fishing it straight through at the same time that you've got a great chance of running into a really big fish on the, uh, you know, fishing that uh, crayfish fly in big water. That's perfect. And you, you mentioned a couple, I mean, there was tips and flies mixed in there, uh, which is um, perfect. And then, so for that second fly, would you, would you note a, another one or would it like a caddis pupa or is there another go-to pattern you have for, for your niffin? In the, in the Northeast for me, it's an Isonychia nymph, uh, oh, yeah. a swimming Isonychia is a, is a pretty big swimming nymph. And, uh, and those will kind of hold in the current and pulse upstream when they're, when they're active and getting ready to hatch. And uh, if your fly is on like a two and a half, three inch dropper tag up above a crayfish fly like that, it absolutely maximizes the effectiveness of that isonychia nymph 
when that thing stops and kind of holds and swims in the current instead of just tracking down through. And so I've some I've caught some big river trout, like over 25 inch wild public water trout on size 10 or 12 Isonychia nymphs fished above crayfish flies in the summer. That's that's uh, definitely a nice. personal tactic of mine. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Great. And then I guess maybe we'll add one more tip there. Do you have another, if somebody's out there, say they're using this setup, anything else to know, you know, to help them find some fish if they're euro niffing? Uh, I, I mentioned like the pendulum, the pendulum swing when you're using a real heavy, uh, heavy, bigger fly. Mm-hmm. And uh, the bigger the fly is in when you get into the waters where fish want to eat those flies, the more actively oftentimes a fish will swim forward and up in the water column to intercept a big food item. And so the bigger the flies you're fishing and it might not be a crayfish, you know, it might be a big crane fly larva or it might be uh helgramite or mm-hmm. it might be a jig minnow imitation all of those you know types of bigger food items if you're gonna if if it's something that the big trout are going to eat they're gonna come and and get it and so uh tracking those big flies down into the current right from the surface as they sink instead of kind of letting them free fall into the current and then coming tight to them when they're in deeper water you will you'll miss a lot of your bites from the biggest most active fish uh, if you aren't tight to the big fly as it sinks down into the water. Okay, perfect. And <clears throat> would you have, you know, on this, you're talking about a lot of weight, right? We're using the four weight here, so we're going to be able to cast a little bit more. You've got a big crayfish pattern on there, all this weight. I mean, how do you cast? I mean, that's, I, I think that's a struggle for some people, the, you know, especially if they're brand new. you got this big mono leader. Do you have a tip for casting that, that thing, or are you casting it? You're, you're casting it. And although it's nice to have a mono rig with something as heavy as a crayfish, and I'm, when I'm talking about a size 10 or size eight crayfish, that's not really a bigger fly than like a golden stone fly. Oh, okay. But, uh, having, having a little bit heavier butt section in a tapered mono leader, a lot of guys these days are going through just leaders that are really thin all the way through. And that will help you detect bites when you're using something like a Pertagon or like just a really dense little bullet mm-hmm. of a fly. But when a big trout eats a inch long crayfish, they're going to thump the fly in a way that, you know, your strike detection isn't going to be an issue for you. And so being able to build a tapered mono leader that might be like 15 pound, 12 pound, 10 pound, 8 pound, where even if your line isn't out, you have enough of a steep, you know, descending yeah. That you can, you know, turn over and do what they call like a Belgian style cast, where you kind of slide the slide the weighted fly alongside you, behind you, and then let it kind of swing up and then and then bring it around to your. uh, That's that's the way that I would suggest uh, casting with the flies. But going to a little bit of a bigger, steeper taper of a mono leader goes a long way for controlling a bigger nymph like that. Nice. And that's another good tip. Yeah. I think that's the struggle is that if you're not, if you don't have that heavy enough butt in on your mono, that it's going to just, there's no way. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's what I was doing last time I was out. I was uh, having some, some struggles there. Okay. And then what about a resource? Uh, do you have like a resource or two that, you know, if somebody wanted to dig into, you know, they got your setup, they've got your contact too, Rod, they got this whole setup, uh, you know, to learn how to do it. Where, where would you point somebody? The number one place that I would point people is to the uh, the website that Devin Olson, yeah, uh, it's Michael Flyfisher. Yep. Devin Olson from the Team USA Fly Anglers, but he is just a wealth of information as far as what products are available, what the you know where the rigging trends are going, and you know also he has a store there where you can access things like bright colored wax to rub on your cider and you know the all the fanciest new hook jig shapes. He does a great job with his blog about talking about the actual fishing. And, you know, that's, that's definitely a resource if people are into the Euro nymphing and they haven't already seen Devin Olson stuff. That's definitely one to check out. Perfect. Yeah. Devin and, uh, we had him on a while back and there's also, yeah, Lance Egan and, uh, I think Gilbert, uh, Rolly, there's a few people that are kind of working. I think they're all working together on that stuff. So that's cool. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, th- I guess I'll let you get out of here, Joe. I, um, uh, just want to check with you. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, obviously we talked about the contact too. Anything else new coming up you want to highlight for, uh, you know, kind of yourself or TNT that we can expect in the next year or, or so? 
Yeah, there's there's going to be a new flagship saltwater and freshwater rod lineup released from TNT in the next calendar year. So it, uh, it's going to be a pretty dynamic uh, year for uh, for new high performance products from TNT. Perfect. All right. If they want to find you this uh, Instagram, I guess it's uh, Teeth and Trout or uh, ThomasandThomas.com. And uh, yeah, Joe. Hey, thanks again for uh, all the information here. It's been a lot of fun, and I'll look forward to checking back with you when we're all ready to go with this. Great. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for giving me time today. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 193. And don't forget, uh, as you leave today, about the uh, We Speak Trout, uh, the new podcast we launched, uh, wespeaktrout.com. You can find that at uh, wetflyswing.com slash we speak. Uh, that'll get you over there. If you have a chance, it'd be amazing if you could just click over now and click subscribe on your app of choice. That would help us get the word out there and i want to thank you in advance if you have a chance to check that out so that's a wrap i want to thank you again today for stopping by to check out the show i'm looking forward to catching up with you soon hope to maybe see you on the river or online thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show for notes and links from this episode visit wetflyswing.com